This is Brain Fuzz, the art, music, and culture podcast with Joe Camusa and Matthew White. Today, Joe and Matthew join multidisciplinary artist Ben Coleman to discuss his work with sound. They visit the room of future hits for the listen. They enjoy tea and tour his vinyl collection. Airplanes fly overhead while workers and birds cavort outside. This is episode 36. White. I'm Joe Camusa. And this is Ben Coleman. Hey. I'm Ben Coleman. Ben, how do you refer to yourself? Generally as an artist or more specifically sound artist? Well, I've been thinking a lot about this recently because it's it's grant writing season for me. Um, I would just say artist, but um, more so my background is in live art. So... I'd say I'm a, a hybrid of a sonic artist and a live artist, a performance maker. It's all splitting hairs, really, but when I was yeah. a little kid and I was in college, it was all contemporary performance making was the degree I did in London. The, the seminal things for me was that, that performance background parallel to my experience as a, like a self-taught musician. So I've been in bands since I was a kid, so... I, I basically just eventually found a way to fuse those together. So the music, that's what I was going to ask, the music came first and then like engineering slash production? Yes. Just kind of out of necessity? Yes. Um, control. Just an urge to know what was going on. So I went back to uh, engineering school just so that I knew how to set up my own stuff and I wasn't beholden to someone else and the you know, I wanted to know how to do a multi-channel installation and what a compressor actually does and all of those things. That's fantastic. So. I mean, I think as, as I, I would identify as amateur, although mm-hmm. I've been playing my whole life, but I mean, to actually have that kind of uh, knowledge instead of, you know, starting with a four track and, and evolving, but like the whole digital thing, like I'm it's so half-assed yeah and it's just so vast like I don't have the time but I, I envy fast and it's just so vast I mean my approach <laughs> it's just overwhelming you know it's yeah. like you can have any like you said uh, which compressor do you want on the song and yeah. what do you want to, and it's just like wow it's like want to hit just record and go but that's I, good too I think as invaluable though uh, to have that wealth of knowledge um well, you know, it was a, it was an eight week course. It was it was an intensive, but uh, I didn't have time to go to full sale or something either. So I went to the recording workshop in Ohio, which has been there since the seventies. It's rad. Just residential. It was like a Friday the thirteenth holiday camp. Everyone was in chalets, <laughs> yeah. miles from anywhere, and um, there were like four studios and a bunch of guys that someone really needs to make a documentary about doing the teaching. And it was it was great. But it's kind of like you just knock one chip off your shoulder and you get another one because now I want to uh, increase my music theory, you know? Uh-huh. So like now it's the challenge is that I want to write scores and symphonies and stuff. Um, so there's always something, there's always a, a bar that you feel like you're not matching up to. I feel like, but that's, that's between me and my shrink. This is the, <laughs> it's a different conversation. So go through, your, go through the steps in your education history. As a kid... Um, I don't really remember anything until I got into music and uh, theatre at the same time, um, and that was a real blossoming for me. And then went to college to do contemporary performance making. A lot of people in my course were theatre students who hated it, but basically what it was was like getting dipped in acid in terms of your feelings about theatre because it was it was definitely contemporary contemporary performance. You know, this was Abramovich and. Mm-hmm and that kind of scene um, and it was late 90s London so there was a lot of crazy stuff going on a lot of amazing stuff and learning about Brecht and Grotowski and so basically theatre was done for me at that point but whilst at college forming my first bands finally after wanting to do it ever since I was 12 and um, playing around the city and um, figuring out how all of that worked um, so then left London a couple of years after I finished college. I've been here now on and off for 12 years or so. Um, and here was where the music really kicked off. So um, I took a break from anything performance related just because I didn't feel like the theatre scene here was really my thing. 
Um, I think it's grown a lot since I first came here, but a lot of the stuff that I seem to encounter, it felt like it was like TV kind mm -hmm. of writing. Okay. It was like little sassy sitcom-y type vignettes of, of theatre. Um, and I was, I was probably being an enormous snob too at the time. But um, so started a band with a guy that I met called Judy Chicago. And we were good for a few years. Like we were on fire and it was awesome. And I was able to basically pour all of my interest in contemporary performance into that band. Um, and so, you know, I think partly we got popular because of our spectacle in town. Um, and we were just, we would just tear places apart. It was so fun. Um, and then slowly found myself drifting back towards um, the art world, I guess, and the performance world um, as that band quietened down. And um, the, the through line has always been liveness, I think. It's the thing that I've always loved. Is um, Fun is a real guiding principle for me and always has been ever since I got into theatre. It was, it was stuff like Dario Fo and like the Italian... Uh, rough theatre, clowning, stuff like that. Um, Brecht is all about the fun too, uh, keeping a crowd happy. The, the idea that being experimental and risky doesn't have to be po-faced or, you know, they're not mutually exclusive. People are more eager to go with you if you're giving them a good time. Mm -hmm. um, and so, yeah, the games, play, fun, all the kinds of things that you'd hope to get at a good show is the kind of stuff that I like to bring into all of the performance work that I do. With, let's see, I got to hear you talk about the Medium Project at a listening party. Can you talk a little bit more? I think you said it was a, you were a, what did you call, a sound curator? What was it? I think that's what they called me. They called yeah. you a sound curator? Yeah. It's a good title. <laughs> yeah, it is. Um, I saved the badge. Um, so, I mean, it's almost just like being a, uh, what would be the word, uh, a compiler, I guess. But it was really nice to actually uh, reach out to all these artists that I respect so much and get new works from them. So um, Medium came out of conversations with Teresa and Justin at the ZMA um, from the, from the get-go when they started telling me about the concept of the show being about psychics and parapsychology and like a triple entendre of the artist as someone reaching beyond the veil, but then also artwork that's a, art that's about mm -hmm. that relationship and the, the materials they had, the historical materials from actual psychics and things like that. Um, I, I was raving on about sound from the second they told me because of EVP, uh, which has been something that's fascinated me since the 90s, since I started getting into more left field sound. Um, and I, I tried a lot of experiments with it too. Um, so we ended up discussing this to the point where they were like, well, how about if in, instead of doing a typical guide to the exhibition, we do a record? And then they asked me to put it together. So dream project. The tapes that you went through, and they, they were at the University of West Georgia archives, I believe. Yeah, there was a few different things. So um, there were new works that were commissioned and then I reached out to the Society for Psychical Research in London and got in touch with their archivist, who just has boxes and boxes of stuff in his attic, basically. <laughs> Probably like once a week goes up there with a cup of tea and try and digitizes it. And um, he sent me some stuff from his private collection, as well as some stuff from the SPR collection. This guy's called Melvin Willin. He's very cool. He wrote a book about music and witchcraft that I have. So he did a lot of extensive research on so that So you had project. that prior to this project? Yeah. Oh, so what a... <laughs> funny how that works. Yeah, so it was, he was really cool, actually. Um, really cagey at first, but was, uh, you know, warmed up once he realized it, that it wasn't a hoax and we weren't just, like, this is hilarious or whatever. And then Teresa and Justin had already re reached out to the University of West Georgia where they had the William G. Roll archives. He was a noted parapsychologist who moved from New York down to found the parapsychology department at UWG. So they have all of his stuff. And um, they basically got the uh, library to digitize a smattering of the stuff. I think maybe even just based on what was written on the labels to the tapes. And then I got those. 
to deal with. And some of it, yeah, was very long. So you imagine the average parapsychologist, you don't just turn on the machine and stuff starts flying right. across. It's not like Ghostbusters. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. There was like hour long tapes that I edited down to three minute excerpts. So quite a lot of creative license involved. Yeah. But. Well the the package, um is there vinyl still available on that? Yes. I know I have a copy and you know, you don't often see that kind of presentation or that quality of a presentation tied to an exhibit. I was really impressed with the package. It was, it was, it was, uh, it was, I mean, it's the full experience. You open it up, you've got, there's a poster in there and then, and then to put that on and to also know, having heard your story, how much you had to go through to edit that down, to get those little nuggets of, and for whatever reason, I'm, I'm biased towards side B for some reason. I'm glad you listened to it. That's great. Um, That's a great cue there, isn't it? <laughs> well, I want to say I think the reason why it looks so good um, is because of the um, the Steph Dowder yeah. photo on the cover. I love that from the moment I saw it, and I'm so glad she let us use it, so I have to give props to her. Um, we actually just got distribution from Light in the Attic and... Um, San Francisco about a month and a half ago. I think it was just prior to Christmas, so it's actually in stores, which is great. That was the that was the oh, aim. Excellent. Um, uh, Bleep, which is the online record store in the UK, that grew out of Warp Records. They had it on their like advent calendar, hot releases for Christmas, um, which was cool. And it's showing up in people's like online things on Mixcloud and stuff. Yeah. People are putting yeah. tracks on, and um, it was a real. Uh, privilege for me to get an Alluvium track on there I really like his work yes so I think that made a, a difference too because yeah. he's pretty well known so and for the listening party I don't know if I told you this Joe we were outside and there were just these moments it was outside at, at White Space oh, yeah. and okay. there were just these moments where the the wind would just kick up out of nowhere as, as you were playing <laughs> this live outside in this environment and it just added another level to the to the experience yeah, it's uh, so other projects. Have you had you done anything like that leading into that, or the only records I'd, I'd ever put out were my own uh -huh. at that point. Um, I'm pretty much in a in a more straight up band context. I always thought about doing stuff with that format, you know, all the Christian Mark Clay stuff and yeah. all that great stuff. But um, no, and that was the first time that, other than making mixtapes, of course, that I'd ever. Um, which I've been doing since I was a little, which we've all been doing since I was a little kid. So basically, it was like making a mixtape, except that I was able to commission new tracks to put on the tape yeah. from all these artists that I love, and someone else was writing the check. So it was great. It was a it was the best job ever. But not no, not really. I hadn't done anything like that. What's your approach to recording? You know, I guess maybe going back here a little bit, but in terms of like first love is music. Um, that's a huge question. It is. Um, I think I can answer it. Yeah, dive in wherever you wherever you want. But. It depends on the, the the project, I think, and the, what's going on. Um, so um, I try and suck the sound out of the project. I try and make sure that whatever the project is, what you get sonically is the sound of the project and not an accompaniment to the project. And a lot of the time I'm working with collaborators such as uh, choreographers, dance companies, right. things like that. So what I'm trying to make sure is that it's not some arbitrary link. I'm trying to drag the sound out of the, the, the essential concept of the piece. And that's half the fun is making, get, making that original, mining that material and then bending it into whatever shape you want. Um, so uh, a piece I did uh, for a, a performance called Ripple, it was an, a, a new ballet contemporary ballet a few years ago with a, a guy called Eric Thurmond. Uh, this was a Tans Farm thing with, with the Go Farm and, um, and uh, Glow ATL. Mm -hmm. um, I, the, uh, Eric's partner Johnny had written a series of sonnets uh, which were used as the inspiration for the choreography. So I piled all the dancers into a studio and had them read the sonnets and then used that as the material that was exclusively the source for the sound for the piece largely 
Um, and I'd done a piece before then with Eric where he had told me that he'd been really enjoying the new Beyonce album, so I just used that album as the exclusive sound source, which is a little more arbitrary, um, but came to was became the entire sound world of the piece. So I like limitations. That's really important to me. Okay, so limitations, and I just was curious, like from a planned out to an intuitive, like where, how do you walk that line? There's a lot of swimming around trying stuff out for me, a lot of experimentation. Okay. So I log a lot of hours bouncing things around. And well, you, you know, you started earlier talking about fun, and I just think, you know, just from being in a room with you, like, it's, it, it just exudes, you exude this kind of happy, fun, you must be mad, either that or you're hiding, hiding it's probably the muffin. <laughs> yeah. But in a good way. Okay, yeah, yeah, not, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but I'm not exhausted when I when I. No, no, no. But again, what I'm thinking of, like when you talk about like those hours, and it's almost like liken, yeah. likening it to like visual art, which really it's the, it's all the same. But uh, you know, there's this collage type approach, which is which is smart, and whether you're using existing or creating, um, I find that I find that fascinating. But I guess I'm also curious in terms of. Because I, you know, we talk a, a lot with visual artists about the difference of, say, making like in, being in work mode and then critique mode. And musically, I, I'm always thinking like how difficult it is to just even sit down and record yourself, because then you're switching between like performance mode, right, back into well, mm -hmm. I, engineering. If I can, I can't even yeah. say that, but you know, like the more the mechanical stuff, which then instantly is like the buzzkill, and I'm trying to figure out how to get rid of this noise or add. Um, how do you, as a like performer slash engineer, like do you, are there some tricks that you've learned along the way, or do you really have a separation of church and state when you're in that space? It's all one and the same for me, I think. Um, I, I probably break handfuls of rules whenever I'm working on pursuing a certain sound or an idea and then you can worry about that later that makes sense though because I guess but that's got to be your your expertise years of logging all possibly that, all that yeah. time with the gear whereas like someone yeah. who you know that's that makes sense uh, I generate hours of stuff that I don't use so that's part of it so when I it makes sense to me when I'm working when I'm collaborating with a visual artist and I happen to go into their basement or crawl space and there's a million half-finished paintings yeah. or whatever. I understand that. It's just that my stuff's easier to store, so I tend to hang yeah. on to it a bit longer. But I, I was going to, long way around, get to that. Was Is there a ratio, you think, for you know experimentation to finished product? Um, there's a, as, as we all know, there's a trick to knowing when something's finished, right? So that's why I like working with collaborators. Um, mm -hmm. I've been lucky in that most of the choreographers I work with tend to be pretty far out, so they have great ideas and they, they know what they want um, and they're very generous with providing feedback, but they'll also let you go far out and then you have an opportunity to have someone else let you know when when it's done. Or you play it and watch dancers move to it and you know if it's done or not. You know, But um, I'd say I probably end up using about 25% of what I make. Okay, depending well, on the project. All right, and then um, sometimes it's been five or ten. Sometimes you just can't get it right, and it depends on the the um, how quality the the uh, back and forth is with the collaborator or whatever. And it's never finished. That's the other thing. I have to go back and really finish it. Uh, all I need to do normally for performance is get it to the point where it works live. Gotcha. So, oh yeah, right. Right yeah. now, I'm actually going back over a backlog of two years of work, pulling out my favorite highlights and actually like mastering, remixing, wow. getting them to the point where I'd be prepared to put them out in the world, which takes a while. How do you deal with like ear fatigue? Uh, you take breaks. Yeah, take breaks for sure. When it's writing, I can do it for hours. When it's the actual like fiddling around bit. Mm -hmm. um, but mixing, like you have to stop every three hours or so. I think P. That's the trick. Yeah. Do you <laughs> do you uh, do you find you work better, or the ear works better in the morning versus the evening? Is it different? No, it's just about not being interrupted. I think. Yeah. Um, probably. No, it doesn't matter. It really doesn't matter. In pajamas, maybe is better. 
Yeah. Not having a cold. Yeah. It's just stuff like that. Having a deadline really helps. And you were talking about collaborators earlier and you know, parameters for a project. Do you like it when you, do you find that you are proposing projects or the people are coming to you and giving you the parameters, would you prefer to work one way versus another? Um, I'm, I've, I can't help myself when I admire someone's work, so I think that really helps. So I often plant the first seeds. Uh-huh. Um, if I see a, so with Eric Thurman, for example, I saw one of his pieces years back, um, a solo piece, loved it went to see his next one and he was using Steve Reich on the, in the background so had to talk to him at that point and then next time around he was like hey you want to do something so but I'm, I, um, I'm trying to get better at proposing more work but I, I've again been lucky the last few years it's all come to me and still is this year so there's a few companies that have asked me about doing stuff the dance world's quite small here yeah. so now that I've kind of got in there a little bit I'm kind of working my way on Mm-hmm. slutting my way around the dance world and it's great because everyone's so different yeah and is it mainly in town or is it yes well I, I had a when I did the Tans Farm thing a few years ago mm-hmm. the other performer there who saw our work was from New York and he had me come up I'll go do some stuff with him there which was really fun so how, how difficult do you find that moving because if you envision a work in one place and then you move to another, I can see how that introduces some interesting challenges that might push the work in different directions. Yeah. That was a real seat of the pants project because I didn't see the work until I got up there. And then we just had a couple of days before the piece wow. actually happened. So I just, I really just didn't sleep. I would go to rehearsals, play stuff while they were moving, headphones on, be writing when they were talking then back off and then you know go back to the apartment I was staying at and work all night and um, but it was awesome it was really fun that was one of the 10% shows so there's a lot of stuff that I basically turned up and he was like I don't really like any of this so could you just oh, wow. use that and that and then I had to stretch that out to 40 minutes <laughs> and you do you are you bringing how much of your own equipment are you bringing to that and then how much of it are you learning somebody else's rig it's all mine and it, I tend to play really small I try okay. not to get co- complex it's like I've done things before with like oh, I'm going to bring out a huge rig of synthesizers and look like Jean-Michel Jarre back there but it, it would it would all be extraneous normally I don't bring more than a couple of toys or maybe some some sound discrete sound sources and a microphone and then I'll process that um, so is that your main not really. Uh-huh. Um, a lot of the stuff that I do is works for hire, so I don't, I don't sell it on afterwards. Okay. Like I get, I get a discreet fee, and that's their music basically. Um, and a lot of the time, the most of the time, in fact, they're very generous, and the, the commissioning group let me use it for promotional purposes. So then I'll put it on SoundCloud, or okay, or I won't. Maybe again, if it's not done, or if it doesn't stand up to me as a single, you know, just as a a standalone headphone listen. That's yeah. the thing. A lot of the time what I'm composing is specifically accompanying something else. Um, so um, sometimes it just doesn't go up at all. So not to get all capitalist on you here, but um, the distribution is interesting. And I was looking at that and I was thinking of that. How, how do you monetize this kind of work visual versus like a visual art where you have your um, you know, maybe you have your, your paintings and you have your prints and you, in, in this case uh, how have you done that in the past and how do you see it going forward well being in bands has taught me that you're only worth what you ask for um, I think that I was prepped in school to, for the life of the live artist to not be a big money spinner right. because um, even now uh, there's not a lot it's not, it's not well and truly entrenched in the establishment yet, with the exception of some superstar Abramovich types. Yes. Yeah. Um, so, and yeah, it's, it's, it's just the nature of the thing that the work is ephemeral. So mm-hmm. you just have to um, hope that the institutions that you work with understand and value that. And I think more places now are getting performance curators, dance curators. Um, so 
in a way, I'm lucky because I have something left over often, whereas the, yeah. the dancers and choreographers, they really That's are true. living the, the life, the ascetic life. They do it and it's done. It's smoke, yeah. you know? But, you know, I mean, I've seen, even just for, like, the lay person, like, uh, Guggenheim has had more mm -hmm. events where, whether it's a national playing the same song over and over for, like, how long they do? Like, four hours, something like that. You know, and it makes sense. I mean, who doesn't like music? And yet, it's weird how the art world sometimes can be so, you know, again, compartmentalized. Mm -hmm. and well, it's just, yeah, I'm, I, it's interesting to me that in this area, when I first moved here, that we were winning the Creative Loafing Awards, but we were winning it in the nightlife section. Um, <laughs> you know, and yeah. that's it. The music, true. music is not in the arts section, yeah. which blows my mind. It's like, what, is it just something you listen to when, you, when you're getting drunk? Is that the difference? Because I like to look at visual art and get drunk. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's, it's weird. It's weird. It, it is. It is somewhat frowned upon. Maybe it's just like it's not legitimate in the same way because they want it. They want some kind of classical tradition. Or it's also it's also confused now. Fortunately. Well, you know, like when we when Matthew asked you how do you define yourself, I mean, I think it does get into that uncomfortable territory where everyone has to admit it comes to marketing and positioning, and it's it is how it's set up. And I'm sure you know as you're talking about that band is that. You know, are you marketing to be in a, you know, playing star bar where people are throwing back PBRs, or is it going to suddenly you're going to be like more in a hushed, mm -hmm. you know, symphony hall type thing where, right, and, you know, and it's like why can't there be a, an in between, and, um, and you know, let's face it, I think like performance, adding a performative aspect in terms of like giving an audience taking them someplace besides just the music, I mean that. I think that's a whole different level. I mean, and, and so much rock music over the years has just turned into, you know, a bunch of folks, mostly dudes, just standing on stage, you know, playing some songs. Instead of like, uh, and then you think, and then yet you look at someone like David Bowie or these people that just were revolutionary in, in all aspects. I mean, that, you know, there's a huge... I grew up during the, uh, the uh, explosion of rave in the UK. Um, and also listening to quite a lot of punk music, and those have two things in some, some things in common. There's a communality to both of those scenes, right? Yeah. So, particularly post-punk, where it was like the doors were open and everyone came in. So you've got more bands with women in, you've got mm -hmm. more bands with uh, racial diversity, um, anything truly experimental stuff, even now by contemporary standards. And then rave, uh, there were no superstars back then, really. Um, there were thousands of people, faceless people, with one-word names, making music that sounded all the same, and everyone was focused on this thing that was moving so fast and exploding. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I mean, you look at the Star Bar and the Symphony Hall, they're not that different to me, because you, you've got a bunch of important people up there, and then a bunch of plebs sitting in the dark, having to do... I mean, there's, there's more coughing and shouting at the Star Bar, but... Um, other than that and the, the price of the drinks it's not that different so looking at the, the ways you can break that down in those environments but then also put performance elsewhere and make people feel like they're really part of it because DJs without dancers don't make any sense it's the same with all live art liveness is, a, is an interaction of energies between the performers and the yeah. you know the audience the, the, the person who's come to, to see the thing is just as important and they should be made to feel that way I think. Yeah, it's kind of, we're always going back and forth between analog and, and digital, and, and I'm making the jump to like DJs, where it's like, you, know, you do some DJ work, correct? Yeah, it's done. It is interesting now how like, it, you know, somebody has a laptop and some speakers, they're, they're DJing, you mm -hmm. know, like the overuse of the word curator, but I mean like, a real DJ, you know, can get an audience, you know, on their feet and move them through a lot of different emotions, experiences, etc. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm in again awe. Again, there's a performative aspect versus just playing a bunch of mm -hmm. songs mm -hmm. by rote. So I saw your I saw your um, work in the medium show. I remember a number of speakers. Was it how many speakers? Thirty-six. Thirty-six. I think because mm -hmm. it was a um, it was a symmetrical array, so it could all be run off of one channel uh -huh. without exploding. Um, 
So I, that just blows my mind. It's like it's totally rudimentary electronics, but the fact that you could just have like 128 speakers or whatever, and they all just sit there and balance one another on coming out of one power amp. It's like this is awesome. So that that was that spread out in a fairly random constellation, and then a, a, a two-screen video installation. Now, where does your work end and begin in a project like that? Um, How much of the installation okay. do you consider yours? Uh, I'd say that was all me. The, that piece took a really long time to work on. So uh, started off working solely with EVP, um, was drawn to vi video tapes of all kinds. So I started messing around with VCR loops, which are quite hard to make. But, but fun um, and um, then became less interested in the uh, the kind of train spotter side of EVP and more interested in the, the human side what became more interesting to me was less the um, it was less the sound itself which is still really interesting to me but it was more the fact that these men were trying to find the voices of their dead lovers or relatives, whatever it was. Uh, Konstantin Raudiva, who was the, one of the most famous EVP dudes, he was a Latvian psychologist who'd worked with Carl Jung at some point. He didn't invent the thing, but he was fairly early on. He wrote the book that broke it in the US and the UK. Um, he was very old and I think very lonely, and he was just l listening to static and hearing the voices of his dead friends. And it's a, kind of a sad and beautiful thing, right? So. I started acquiring boxes of used VCR tapes, blank VCR tapes, at yard sales and online, and I would go through them until I found people's home movies. Um, and once I'd found about a full 120 minutes worth of stuff that I really thought was, was poignant, I then started running it through generation loss from tape to tape until it was completely smudged out and gross and you couldn't see the faces anymore. And then I... Um, took the sound from those tapes, used that as the exclusive source for the audio, and um, went and got the, the videotapes digitized so I could edit them down for the installation. Um, just because it was going to be there for a month, and if I'd done yeah. something clever with tape, it would have broken every mm -hmm. couple of days. No, I was taken wow. by every aspect of it, including you know the speaker placement, and just a meticulous, the attention that you were, it was clear, the attention that you were uh, putting towards you know every aspect of that installation, and that's why I ask where where your work began. When you envision something like that, it's it's different than a, as you said, an, an ephemeral type of performance. This is something that's going to be there a while. Yeah, and you want to make sure that every little detail is your vision. Somewhat. So, okay, so I made sure that the uh, the video and the sound were arbitrarily looped at different points because uh -huh. I didn't want the sound to be a soundtrack to particular moments. I wanted there to be random alignments of point, point yeah. musical moments because some of the music was, was, I think, pretty overtly beautiful. That's something that I often do. I love to make beautiful work. Some of it was pretty odd. Some of it uh -huh. was kind of sounded cartoonish and strange. Um, and I, I didn't want to just be like, here's a beautiful smudged picture of a bride who's possibly dead now, and here's some sad music to accompany it. You know, I wanted people to everyone to have a unique experience. We would have to go in there if you want to hear anything. You want, you want to? Uh, yeah, I hear it. Be it. That would make sense. We go back to Ben's cozy home studio, one of two spaces he uses for work. With so many gadgets and tools for creating sounds, it's easy to see how he or anyone could spend hours here. Does it have a name? Do you have a name for your studio? It's the Room of Future Hits. The Room of Future Hits. Very well organized. And a lot of great stuff. I have this mini foot controller. I love that. Reliable functionality at a great price. <laughs> You're really selling it. What do you think of the Nord? This stuff is um, great. I don't, I wouldn't, I think, I feel like if you're a touring pro musician, then it's a really good thing to have, but I'm drawn to the, I'm drawn to the weird crap. Right. Like that Porter sound. Mm -hmm. That, uh, that's basically a toy, but it has MIDI in and out, and some 
twisted genius designed a, um, a, 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 a synth tweaking program that works on the Mac and the PC for that thing. So you can send it sysx <laughs> files, and it's got, um, I think it's a, it's a wavetable uh, synthesizer. So it does some really crazy stuff. So it's all going to be a facsimile of, uh, of the actual piece because there are a few things going on. The, um, the speaker array was broadcasting dialogue from the, uh, from the videos and um, that was being kind of shot through a, a, a white noise mix of um, empty radio signals just to reference the old EVP thing where they would record empty frequencies and the sounds from the intros to a bunch of heavy metal tapes from the 80s. So I had a bunch of like, this is Enya. It's yeah, I thought that was Shepard Moons. I didn't yeah. think that was... Uh... I have a, I have a, a whole <laughs> bunch of metal records in there. Yeah, so I took a bunch of like, it was like the soundtrack to Nightmare on Elm Street 3, I think, and like some old Dokken tapes and stuff like that. And I, I used the hiss from those, uh, blended with the AM radio. And then uh, had that on a sidechain compression so that the voices from the video would cut through it. It kind of sounded like a police radio or something like that. That was coming through those uh, little speakers, the 36 speakers. And then there were two stereo monitors that were a little bit heftier mounted that was playing the, the musical program. And I kind of had it arranged because I, I wanted there to be some kind of uh, visual analog to the way that EVP works where... The, the signal itself is buried in the noise. Um, so I wanted those, those speakers to be almost like a noise floor that was above and kind of fighting against what the, the main stereo monitors were doing. You just heard sounds from Ben's installation entitled Imagine I Am, his contribution to the medium exhibition at the Zuckerman Museum of Art. Contrast that with, as Ben mentioned earlier, the Ripple Project, which was in collaboration with Atlanta-based Tans Farm, Glow ATL, and the Goat Farm Art Center. This piece combined his sound work with contemporary ballet. Ben has also released music both under his own name and as part of what he describes as straight-up band projects. 
First, there was the band Judy Chicago. This is Technicolor, Silver Chrome, and Chicken Bone from 2010. most recent band project, Bang Trim, here's Catamaran Cameraman. Somewhere in between, around 2014, was this, Turn It Off, Leave It On, described by Ben as a droney rock tune released under his own name. go back to our original spot to finish our tea and this time we're distracted by the vinyl collection sitting here in front of a really impressive record collection which is always nice and hard to keep my focus as i keep checking out the spines but uh i wanted to ask you about your your influences uh musically and then at the same time if you want to delve into from a production standpoint I don't know if you're a total junkie on that. Like, I have, you have to have all records by, uh, you know, the Jeff Emmerich engineer or what have you, but have at it. Yeah, um, I do read tape off 
Oh, I do stuff. too. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I do have some favorite engineers. Larry Crane. The thing is that um, all engineers are my favorite engineers. Everyone does it in a different way. It's all like I, when I was a kid, I started watching those classic album documentaries. You don't need to like the album. You know, it's like I didn't like Fleetwood Mac, and I, I kind of did by the time I was done watching mm-hmm. the making of Rumors because yeah. it's like it's I love beings. those. Those yeah. are like that's the greatest like porn of all time. And when they actually will, like isolate the tracks and all that, which yeah, the better ones will do it. But I think most artists seem to be a little too uh, reticent, or maybe it's legal. I don't know. I just yeah, that's the songs heaven. in the Key of Life one that they did in the nineties, the Stevie Wonder one, mm-hmm. freaking awesome. I used to have that on, on VHS. So um, big fan of the VHS. Yeah. So um, You've yeah. Got, so you, I, I know rave, music. Your rave culture. Rave, rave. We are um, rave culture. Rave is big for me. Um, I'm, I consider myself very lucky to have been able to be a, somewhat a part of that. So the whole, um, I'll say it again, the hardcore continuum. <laughs> Everything from the late '80s uh, and beyond that came out of the UK was was immense for me, um, and that does inform what I do with, with sampling and electronics. I okay. think for sure. Um, Krautrock was really big for me when I was a kid. I was a huge Stereolab fan growing up in London. Saw them like 20 times. Wow. Just immensely into them and, you know, subsequently dug back into all of the things that influenced them. And um, so that was that was really big for me. Drone music. Basically, that got me into drone music. It's, it got me starting to think about slightly more avant-garde kinds of music via pop. Okay. Um, so those are still huge influences for me. Some of my favourite stuff. Um, I mean, I said I, I was talking about Tangerine Dream earlier. I'm not joking when I talk about that kind of stuff. Um, Manuel Gertsching, Klaus Schulze, uh, Popol Vuh, yeah. all of that stuff. Um, and then you dig further than that. You got Pauline Oliveros. Um, you're getting into Lamont Young, um, Stockhausen, uh, uh, Eliane Raudiga. There's so many uh, amazing composers in electronics. Uh, electronic music is really huge for me. Um, and then uh, I was a I was a young indie rocker too, basically. So there's also a lot to be said for being the Stooges or an Ian Savonius record or something we, that you, you can tell that some like or the Fall is a really good example, right? Mental approach to engineering. He would just be like make the faders look like a wave <laughs> and that's how that might, that might be how they record that day but it's about capturing the, the lightning in the bottle and I think right. that's a really important thing in the days now where you can polish a turd for days it was never any good and it's like well now you've made it sound good but it's still not good um, it's just had like 400 layers of varnish applied to it but it's a turd in there um, I think it's really important to remember that if it's not good it's not worth spending a lot of time over you shouldn't try and make those decisions quickly um, and if you're able to capture joy and capture human fire, um, I'm not a analog purist. I'm not, a, you know, and I, I manage a studio where people are constantly like, "Oh, you've got a 24-track tape machine. Let's be analog." It's like, well, yeah, but you know, it's just another tool, um, right? People, yeah, I wanted to ask you about that. Um, obviously, digital, quicker, cheaper. But uh, sounds better in some. Sure, respects. I was going to think though, but the one thing, and you mentioned tape op, and um, that's like my guilty uh, insomnia pleasure uh, that I hear over and over again, and I realize it. It's like you've got with analog, you've got to have a performance first and foremost. I mean, I know there's 24 track and all that, but I mean, it just seems like it's maybe better suited to someone that actually has put the work in on the front end and yeah. you're capturing instead of, uh, like you said, just polishing and polishing and. Yeah, I'm you know, and I'm love. I love techno, and I love uh, I love a lot of those per- perfect musics. But some of the fun of those early techno records, or when we were talking about things like uh, drum and bass, or it's all sample bass, or early hip hop, you got the sound of humans trying to make it sound perfect. It's only now we're only starting to graze the aspirations and be able to t- you know fine sand everything. Yeah, um, it's the rough edges that make Kraftwerk records so cool. That and the fact they write amazing songs. But like you listen to something like Neon Lights by Kraftwerk, which I did a few a few weeks ago, um, in an altered state, and uh, it's that's what's fun about it. You, you're hearing this German dude playing that thing by hand on a mini Moog in 1980 or whatever. It's amazing. Um, 
I'm glad to see McCartney 2 in here, and I think I know why you have it in here, but I want to hear it from you. Because it's an electro classic. Um, it's like, it's his tusk. It's, 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 it's his like, post-punk album in many ways. And it's, so, it's insane in so many ways. So the whole thing was recorded without a mixing desk, straight to the tape machine. So he just plugged his guitar or whatever it was, direct to his microphone, straight into the tape machine. Um, and it's just got some really, it's got some ideas that in any other situation he probably would have been told that's not such a good yeah. move. Um, but yeah, Temporary Secretary is super weird, sounds like Debo. Um, there's a, a couple of tunes on there I'm obsessed with. There's a track called Dark Room, which totally sounds like a Krautrock song. It's got like that um, motoric noi beat going on. Um, it's got Waterfalls on it, which is amazing. Um, yeah, that's a that's a great record. I love I love it when people stick their necks out, and do stuff like that. Do you tend to? Uh, is there a, a ritual to listening? I mean, are you a full album for the most part? Uh, like if you're depends. sitting down to relax, are you gonna? Yeah, I mean that's it's the same thing with uh, it's a it's a time based medium, right? So I like tape because it demands your attention, and when you're working as well as when you're listening. Um, and records are the same they're, they're more likely to um, make you want to listen to the whole thing I'm not I'm not a stickler though for anything if I'm not feeling it no rituals alright so I've been making notes for a while like okay. oh, yeah. that's something I want to ask Ben and I've told Joe this I've got some criticism for it but uh, I, I tend to focus now instead of just going into a vinyl shop going nuts because I want everything uh I am focusing on everything in its time. And so kind of the, the prevailing medium in that time of recording, we were talking about mastering and that's how I, that's how I got to thinking about it, that a lot of the vinyl that's out there that's reissue, uh, certainly if you're buying from sources overseas, you may be getting something that is actually just a CD put to vinyl. And there are a lot of reputable companies out there that are putting this stuff out. And you really have to do some thinking about it. Otherwise, you might as well just be listening to the CD. You don't buy anything after 1990? On vinyl, I, I have allowed myself... But like stuff that's coming media. out now. Okay, media. Media. I've got a copy of that. I'm okay to have that. There are certain things that, you know, that I'll have. But something coming out right now, I will not buy the vinyl. Why? Um... Like bands that like this is know. actually a good time because people are becoming more aware of that. Yeah, stuff, I mean you know? stuff. There are there are people now recording albums. If you if this if that's your thing, there are people now recording stuff to tape and then going straight from tape to vinyl if that's what you want. Personally, I don't. At the end of the day, I don't care if it sounds good. If a CD is the only available source for a record, that's fine. You know, providing it's good. <laughs> you did. You see, that's great. They'll master it. Typically, anyone cutting it to vinyl will need to remaster it to vinyl on the way in anyway, because a CD would make the, the CD level would make the that's record right. skip. So they are having to shave off low end and some things to mono and um, do some specific mastering just when they cut the record. I don't want Octune Baby on vinyl, and I know you don't want it on any format. But I don't want. It. <laughs> no, I hear what I you're saying. Want, you're but just, I don't want it on but vinyl. I think there was a window, but I mean, I think yeah, in the no. last few years, though, I think especially like to your point, like there's a yeah, lot of really okay, good right. stuff that's coming I mean, out, I, I mean, knowing that it's going on the. And and I and in a moment I will share some of my exceptions to this. All I right. still buy CDs. Now's oh, a really I love good, CDs. Now's a really yeah, good time because everyone thinks they're obsolete, but and they're not. They're, what they are is rare items because we only had CDs for a couple of decades um, and they're not going to start I mean they're kind of reaching their, the end of their life so I think that 10 years from now people will be going gaga for CDs well in your talk the, the um, listening at the listening party we were just talking about you mentioned that we'll be able to listen to the CDs probably we'll be, def we'll be able to listen to the records we may not be able to listen to the digital files in like the in, future you're in the future okay. yeah because yeah, there's also the there's also the fact that they can they'll get lost in an ocean of data um, but yeah digital formats are, you have to you have to reconcile with the fact that they're impermanent um, whereas you know if I put one of these albums somewhere safe um, or even better cut it onto a ceramic tile mm -hmm. and stuck it under a mountain yeah 
uh, even aliens would probably be able to work out how it how it works. But the perception is the digital will be there forever. At least that's the thinking now. But that's not true. Yeah. Because you, you're going to have to have the codex and the. I did a lot of thinking about that when I was working on the Medium project, my installation, because um, the difference is that when something deteriorates in an analog format, it's kind of beautiful, and digital doesn't deteriorate, it just snaps, it just breaks, typically. Um, you can do some fun things stretching, if you've ever taken like an image and turned it into an audio file, you can get some really crazy, I mean it's like all the noise artists and the glitch artists and things, but generally it just won't work anymore. Um, whereas a crackly record can be kind of a beautiful thing, you know, mm -hmm. especially if it's like nearly a hundred years old, as some of them are getting now. 180 grand. What's the deal? Um, I think that's fairly arbitrary. It's just that it, it just means that they've, they've spent a bit of more time and consideration as to the quality of the record. Because some of those thin, late oh, like the 70s and stuff, yeah. yeah. Sometimes it could be pretty crummy. I like handling the 180 grand. But in the example that we were just saying, some of these some of these companies that are reissuing things and don't necessarily have the rights in in the U.S. to do it, or they will put it on 180 gram. But so I um uh, Nicole, my wife, very kindly bought me a, a, a MC5 reissue recently. Beautiful record. It had this It had like the the wing. You know, front cover glued around the other side, silver on the front. It's like this is a freaking gorgeous record, but um, this they, they put too much on it. By the end of the side, it sounded like absolute doo doo. So it doesn't matter how fat the record is if you put too much audio on it. Those are the real fundamental things: is less less space, a quality source, a good mastering engineer. So the Rush remasters are almost certainly good. They sound amazing. Yeah, sure. And, and I think this was just an inside joke. I seriously, they're on like 200. Well, there is bigger, but then you're running some risk of like stylist abuse, you know? But like, okay. Because of height. I mean, is that right. valid? 200 well, grand plus. I mean, what that what is that going to do? Um, who knows? But yeah, it's, if they could do it. I'm sure, they, I'm sure they, there was some science behind it. Those guys are the kind of people who would actually bone up in advance of pressing a reissue, so. I feel like that was a kind of a thing, like some of the sources that where I buy, I'm starting to notice the heavier, heavier, it's like 180 seems to be sufficient. Otherwise you have to adjust your turntable. Yeah. Depending on how your, yeah. the settings are. But he brings up a good point though, because you're talking about like 180 and, and I know where you're going with, uh, you know, like the 30, whether it's playing at 33 or 45, but I'm noticing a lot of the records that are coming out though, I'm getting like, you know, what was once a single album is now spread out over four, so less songs per side, so and that, then even going to, to 45. That, so that's my next half speed master. What's the deal? Again, it's just the more, more room to let the sound breathe. I think that's, that's the only thing that it's about. It's, um, volume and bandwidth if we're talking specifically vinyl then that's all it is would a, a good comparison be uh, Rain by the Beatles which was recorded at Hass because the guitars just have this almost cello like that's a good point and that's yeah is that kind of that's similar the more tape the better so if you're recording at high speed then you're going to get a better quality signal you're not, you're not stretching it over quite so much tape so recording at 15 ips, inches per second instead of 7.5 is going to get you a better quality. So it's about that. It's about getting the best quality sound out of the tapes. So if but I, if the songs suck, then don't bother. <laughs> right, right, yeah. So, but if I buy, so if I buy a, vinyl, a piece of vinyl that's marketed as... By now, I'm sure it's becoming clear to you too that Ben is less concerned with the consumerist OCD aspect of vinyl collection and more concerned with the, wait for it, actual music. The work, the art behind the sound. I don't, I'm not a, a um, hi-fi audiophile at all, you know, not at all. Um, I like to buy records that aren't scratched. Just, that's just like collector car stuff, yeah. I'm not interested yeah, that much. Yeah, it's like that. such a, a rabbit hole. That... Again, I'm just interested as to whether the record's any good, really. Possibly. Yeah, I, uh, I mean, I, I've invested in a decent cartridge. Um, 
that's the luxury. I still have a turntable from high school on old techniques. And I've got good power and good speakers, but, um, you know, it's, that, that is important. But as far as, like you said, like getting to the point where the cables cost more than my car and a $10,000, I'm always like, how, how much better is a $10,000 turntable going to sound than a $1,000 turntable or yeah, $500? Not a $9,000 there's, no. there's hiss on the records. Records aren't pristine things. You get hisses when you're playing back stuff on tape that's just been recorded in a studio or digitally. Yeah, I true. mean, it's always going to be. It's part of the process. It's, there's hiss in life, you know. It's like uh, yeah. life is dirty. Yeah. I think that that's when you see that's what it is, and you see this in so many different worlds where people are just trying to impose control on a chaotic universe. All right, you give me a lot to think about. <sighs> this has been. Fantastic. Yeah. And makes me want to go buy yeah. some records. I know. Uh, or clean some. Got to go through. I, I have. I'm uh, behind. Yeah, I gotta. Yeah. I've bought some new ones. And do you, do, do you clean? <laughs> one, one last thing. Do you clean? No, I just try and buy clean records. <laughs> <laughs> I do. I. You can discover the sounds and resources referenced today and for every episode at brainfuzzpodcast.com. Find out more about Ben Coleman and buy music at bencolemansounds.bandcamp.com. Special thanks to Ben for the clips we enjoyed today. Follow us on Instagram at brainfuzzpodcast. Get show notes at brainfuzzpodcast.com. On social media, use hashtag brainfuzzpodcast. I mean, whatever. I buy second-hand records that are 30 years old may sound fine to me. So, and God knows what some, you know. Yeah, what's going on?